Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. We're really thrilled to be joined by another podcaster, Ross O'Kiali. Um, he's uh, the podcast host of the Green Urbanist podcast, which I recommend you all to check out. Um, he's also learning program manager for Design Southeast. And he's the London National Park City Ranger, um, too, which we're going to find out a little bit more about. But, um, but Ross, many thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm, I'm really excited to have this uh, exchange of knowledge with another podcaster. And uh, I love the work you're doing. That's great. Thank you. And I love the work you're doing, too. You've got amazing people you're interviewing. And obviously, you're passionate about having greener cities um, on so many levels and how it also can help the environment and um, and the well-being and, and welfare of, of everybody and yeah. plants and animals too, which is wonderful. So, um, well, I mean, maybe uh, from my point of view, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and um, kind of what got you into it um, and um, yeah, kind of what you're doing now. Just give, give the people a slight flavor of what you're doing. Absolutely. So I'm um, a an urban designer and a planner by background and I studied geography as well in university and I really came into this really having a passion for the natural environment and, and an, an understanding that you know uh, climate change is very serious and we need to do something about it but I think probably in in the first couple of years of my professional life just sort of finding my way through through the world uh, working in different positions maybe sort of lost sight of that side of it um, and really, I have to say, in 2018, when there was the Extinction Rebellion protests, mm. um, particularly in, Lon in London and in other cities, that sort of really woke me up to how important it is that we as, a, as an industry, you know, architects, designers, planners, developers, um, start really, really refocusing everything we're doing towards um, mitigating and adapting to climate change. And I was sort of humbled by myself that I realized that even though I'm someone who's passionate about it, I didn't really know that much about it beyond just the very simplistic stuff. And so at that point in 2018, I started on a kind of personal journey of just educating myself, reading, uh, looking for podcasts and that kind of thing. Of course, we all know what happened after that. The pandemic hit. We all found ourselves stuck at home with a lot more free time than we're used to. And I thought, well, I'm doing all this reading and figuring things out. I'm sure there's other people like me um, who are on a similar journey. So I, I, I sort of uh, after a lot of months of procrastinating, put, decided to go and publish uh, a podcast, which I call The Green Urbanist, um, which I always say is as much for my own education as anyone else's, because it gives me a platform to go and talk to uh, amazing people um, who are doing fantastic work in sustainability and design. Uh, professionally, now I am uh, working for a nonprofit called Design Southeast, and we do a number of things to try and um, improve the quality and sustainability of design in the southeast of England and my role is uh, as learning program manager and so I run basically a curriculum of, of events and training programs to try and help um, mostly public sector planning officers so planning officers who work in local authorities to upskill in design and sustainability and related topics so they can do do their job better essentially um, and then you also mentioned about London National Park City so I'll, I'll fill you in a little bit on that and this is a huge topic as well but um, if you think about the great national parks of the world, places like uh, Yosemite uh, in the US, or even like the Lake District, um, or the great wilderness, you know, sort of intact bits of wilderness in Scotland, um, all of those are very rural, 
they were quite far away from people. Um, you sort of, it takes quite a lot of effort and, and maybe a certain amount of money and free time to go and actually spend time with those. And so a movement was started in London years ago, which was the idea that, well, London has so much amazing nature in it as well. What if London and other cities could also be considered as national parks and people could just live in them? And we really took seriously and, and um, reimagined what the nature in cities actually means if we started to consider them as natural, as uh, national parks. Um, so three years ago, almost to the month, uh, the mayor of London uh, basically took this movement really seriously, which had grown from a grassroots movement and had signed uh, officially that London is actually a national park. And so that's where national park city comes from. So it has that formal designation from the mayor of London. And that's now starting to spread around the world. Adelaide in Australia is the second national park city in the world. And there's many, many others that have campaigns to do the same. So a really inspiring movement um, that's spreading globally. Uh, and for us, what we do as rangers, we're basically volunteers. Uh, we don't go riding around on horseback through the parks of London, which is probably the image you have of, of a ranger. Uh, but we do, we basically are 150 people across the capital who have um, different skill sets, come from different walks of life. Some of us are artists, some people are ecologists, some people are PhD students, other people are just uh, people who are working like at the ground level in communities, getting greening happening in their local neighborhoods. So um, we're doing a variety of things, but really our, our goal is to do anything that makes London greener, healthier and wilder. Uh, and so you know, you can you can imagine there's a huge array of, of things and activities happening around that. Wow, That's, that must be amazing. I mean, you must you must get really positive feedback as well. You know, I mean, it see, a ranger, you would assume you're sort of wandering around actually <laughs> in, in location um, and stuff. I mean, do you, you do you get to interact with people and you kind of they ask you questions or, you know, is there like a sort of theme of, of what they ask? Is it like are there, are there certain things that people ask you or? I think one of the, the things we're really trying to do with the National Park City movement is spreading the awareness about it. Mm. Uh, a lot of Londoners still don't know that they have a, they live in a designated national park, yeah. uh, but also a lot of the local authorities and the policymakers and, and uh, landowners and people who, who have the real ability to make big change in the city also don't know about it. And so yeah. a big thing we're trying to do is to sort of uh, on one hand, just to spread awareness and to celebrate the fact and celebrate all the great things and to get people inspired to go out and use the uh, the natural assets that we have in the city. And then the other side of it is, is doing more. And so that's trying to find ways to support people who are working locally, um, trying to uh, support sort of nature interaction. So, uh, you know, there's something that was started by one of the rangers. It's called the London Fungus Network. <laughs> which is fantastic and, uh, it's, it's just a little organization that sort of exists to connect people to mushrooms and other fungi in the city and they do things like foraging sessions where they bring people out into parks and they teach them about mushrooms and about the, the amazing role they play in ecosystems uh you know what ones to eat what ones you shouldn't eat and that kind of thing um so there's all sorts of, of fantastic things going on um, from my point of view, what I'm involved in is there's also a London National Park City podcast, which I'm helping out on, which is called the Regrowth Project. That's fantastic. And I'm, I know I'm biased, but <laughs> honestly, really, really good. Um, and yeah, we've also held events. Uh, we held an online event 
which had, I think, like a couple of hundred people come to from around the world, which is all about urban greening and city resilience. So, yeah, a lot of it is really, I think, at this point about information sharing and supporting local initiatives that are happening. But I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see the movement get stronger and stronger. And I really hope starts to play more of a role like at the upper decision making. So I'd love to see councils and politicians actually paying more attention to it um, yeah. in that sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of So when you're saying, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always advocating and trying to sort of like bang that drum that to bring more greenery to, you know, to where you are, if you know what I mean. So you don't have to go too far to find yeah. some greenery so you can hang out and, you know, and it's all about this equity side of things as well, that it doesn't matter what, you know, how rich or poor you are. We all yes. have access to to greenery and water and, and sort of canals and that. Is that what it is? It's like the whole network, like sort of like the big parks and the small pocket parks and the canals and waterways. And is that is that the kind of thing that? Yeah. So we, we have this amazing map that we produced, um, which shows all the green and blue spaces in London. Oh, right. Wow, and, really? How can you find just, that? Sorry, how can um, you find that? <laughs> yes, it should. I think it's the website is nationalparkcity.london and that okay. has all the resources and information on it. But something that the sort of mapping exercise told us was, I think it's 48% of London's surface area is green and blue. Wow, amazing. And so that includes everyone's back gardens, as well as the public parks, the canals, the rivers, the swimming ponds and all that kind of stuff. So it really tells you that, you know, you can look out and it feels like quite a gray, hard city, but actually you know, almost half of it is uh, is a natural surface of some sort. Yeah. Uh, and we want to see that, you know, increase even more and 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 that kind of thing. So yeah. yeah, it's 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 I think you know making people aware actually of what amazing things we have. There's another uh, friend of mine, a ranger, who runs an Instagram page called Fruity Walks. <laughs> uh, which there's all these really whimsical people who are involved in. in this. Brilliant though. Fantastic. And, and she's going around London and taking pictures and documenting the stories of fruit trees all over London. Wow. And uh, she's found some amazing things, you know, like the typical sort of British fruit you'd find, like apples and pears, of course, are, are more common than you might think. A lot of parks actually in London have orchards, mm. um, which, which is fantastic. Uh, but also she's found quite exotic things. Um, she's found in an, uh, in an estate in Bermondsey, someone has a lemon tree in their garden, which mm -hmm. produces fruit every year. Um, you know, and she's found, I think somewhere she found an avocado tree as well, which is like unbelievable that that can thrive in, in London. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think little things like that, they can seem quite small, but I think there's a lot of wonder out there, I think in, in the sort of urban natural world. Um, yeah. and we sort of are trying to get used to sort of looking for it a bit more and looking at those details. Yeah. I think that's fantastic, isn't it? Like you say, if you've got, if you've got like a, um a guide or a map or or something which can open your eyes i mean like podcasting and all this kind of stuff you know if you can share that information and get people excited about it um and and, and sort of engage them in a different way you know very practically like you say the sort of what was it called the fruity fruity what was it called the fruity walks the fruity walks i yeah, mean what a cool thing and at, it, at fruity walks on instagram <laughs> there's there's so many um wonderful um trees and like you know the urban farms and things as well yeah. these sort of projects that are, that are setting up in like in a city you know what you would think of as normally barren areas you kind of turn around the corner and there's lots I mean I was I was born in London and my mother's family were all London like from like 1800s and 
And my mum always used to say, like the plane trees and all this sort of stuff, you know, and and the the, the green belt and everything. It's all been the lungs of London, and mm. you know, and, and and it's just it's, from an early age, she inspired me to kind of look look to see trees everywhere in oh, London. Yeah. And so I kind of I have a already have a, a leaning towards that to kind of have my eyes open, but I, I didn't I didn't realize that there was was it forty six percent? Did you say forty eight percent? I think forty eight percent of London like is covered by greenery. Um, that's great. I think a lot of cities and a lot of towns could could take it. Sorry, excuse the pun, but take a leaf out of that book. You know, I think. <laughs> sorry, that's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's great. Do you, I mean, personally, what what sort of do you think are the greatest challenges that cities are finding? You know, right now, that's sort of impacting the environment. Um, you might they might be sort of stopping them from actually implementing this stuff, or you know, or just just generally, are there any particular factors that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so many shared challenges across across many cities across the world. And I think we could we could talk about you know um, air pollution. We could talk mm. about um, a lack of nature in cities, lack of biophilia. We could talk about uh, too much, too many cars, too much car traffic. Um, and all this kind of thing. But I think if at the root of many of the problems that we're seeing in, in cities and urban areas, um, I believe is, uh, and I'm going to go a bit out there here, but stay with me, listeners. Um, I, I, I believe that we have sort of forgotten um, the fact that we as humans are actually animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, if you're a zoologist and you were designing um, an enclosure for, a, um, a, you know, an animal, you would, a good zoologist who wanted to keep the animal happy and healthy would go to their natural habitat and try to understand what that looks like. And then they would do their best to recreate that uh, in a zoo. Um, and, you know, it's, it's never perfect, but it's, it's, it's moving in the right direction towards, you know, recreating that. There's a similar argument to be made, I think, for humans, which is that we are now a predominantly urban species, but it, we, we, we haven't we're not really supposed to be here like we've sort of domesticated ourselves in a sense <laughs> you know the, the word domestication comes from the latin domus which means house you know who's the one living in the house it's us so we, we've domesticated ourselves um and as over the course of human history has happened in a relatively quick um period of time and so a, a good way of visualizing this is um so me and you vanessa are, are what you'd call anatomically modern humans and us as a species, we've looked like this. We've been very similar for the past 350,000 years, more or less. Um, if you want to visualize that, get a big blackboard and draw a line that is three, 3.5 meters long. So that represents um, 350,000 years. Um, and then um, you basically, uh, basically we, 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 for most of that time, we were living as hunter-gatherers. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, we, we were staying more or less in, in a, a small location, um, a couple of kilometers across. We were living in tune with nature. We were take, getting everything we need from the environment. We were part of sort of these natural cycles and that kind of thing. Um, that all changed about 10,000 years ago, spontaneously across the world. Many people started developing agriculture. And from that, society and civilization took off to the point where we were building cities about 7,000 years ago. Um, and then we started inventing the sort of mass religions and capitalism and the steam engine and fossil fuels and all of that started to boom, 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 happen really, really fast. Um, and if you map that out, so you've got your 3.5 meter long line, the last centimeter is the last 10,000 years. 
Uh, and so that tells you that we are basically the way we're living now is, is not normal in the sense of the, the scale of us living on the earth as a species. Uh, and perhaps at the, the, the root of many of the, the health um, and the social problems that we're facing uh, in urban environments, as well as the environmental problems of us causing global climate change, um, I think lies at the root that we've forgotten where we've come from. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I really believe that's something I, I would like to see an understanding brought into sort of the urbanist um, professions, architecture, planning, urban design, etc. Um, is an understanding that we as animals have certain needs and we've evolved for a certain habitat um, or different kinds of habitats. Uh, and that in cities, we need to be moving towards actually recreating that as best we can. And once you take that perspective, actually, you know, it opens up a whole world of 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 how the built environment might change and we can get into a couple of examples um, of that uh, as well but i've been for people who are who are maybe sparking you know sparked by this idea um, i've been working on like a multi-part podcast series on this so i have three episodes out now uh with the title primal city so there's part one part two part three i'm working on a part four i might keep going if i keep having more ideas um but that might be a good place to start for people who are interested in this idea that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I recommend people to go and have a listen to it. Um, it's, it's really, really good. It's eye opening. It's inspiring. And, and it gets people get, you know, gets your thoughts going about how you can how you can do it yourself as well. You know, and it helps that when you're talking to people, yeah, adding adding words to your argument, as it were. Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned about sort of zoology and, and animals. And it's true. We are we're animals. We are nature. We are part of we are living, breathing. We're all part of that ecosystem if you want um i interviewed nigel osland recently um and he's written a book called workplace zoo and he <laughs> talks about the landscapes office you know sort of the german the landscape bureau um where how we need to create different spaces within with even within um a workplace where right. we can yeah where we can um thrive you know we can flourish in each little tiny bit you know so some, sometimes we might need a bit quiet space we need this whatever but you know we need a you know noisy place where everybody's thing or we need some ch chill out time out time um so actually like just going back on that thing of like we are animals we are actually you wouldn't and he talks about the zoo thing you wouldn't put you know a giraffe in in like the polar bear enclosure and you wouldn't put the polar bear in like you know the armadillo enclosure you just you just don't do it you sort of you have to go do things that are relevant to that species and as you said you know on that timeline what a great way of of describing it that's so brilliant that 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 last bit on that string um is where we've been um but actually this whole three was it three three point two meters worth of of string yeah. is it was was with primal we were outside you know mm. we were we were living and we were thriving outside and um you know sometimes we were being eaten as well but that's like <laughs> that's you know that's also our mindset of like you yeah. know even even like putting our back to the wall and having this yeah. prospect and refuge and all these sort of things that we need to have um we need to bear in mind when we're creating um workplaces and homes and spaces where mm. we're all gonna um live our best lives really you know um really I, th I think that's you know I think that's an interesting point you bring up about the you know we were 
obviously we are sort of a, a predator and a prey species at the same time. We're, we yeah. often think of humans as being the top of the food yeah. pyramid. Actually, we're kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a, yeah. a lion or a wolf would be very happy to find a, a, a lone human <laughs> defenseless. You know. it's, it's, I was going to say exactly. I mean, it's like with acoustics, you know, sort of the whole thing about biophilia is like, you know, it's like we, we talk about trying to create better environments that are not so reverberating, you know, so by putting mm. plants and soft furnishings and that kind of stuff creates that um, whole thing of like living outside, you know, um, as Andrea Harmer says, no, nature doesn't have walls, you know, so right. there's, no, there's no four walls around us. It's just open. And Paige Husband of, of Echofon, uh, she talks about um, how uh, we, we could just open a window, open a door. And actually, that's one of the best forms of acoustics. Um, but um, yeah, it's, I think it's just vitally important that we um, we create so anyway, just we, we talk about this sort of like, you know, creating damp, you know, sort of dampening a sound in a, in a very mm. um, loud and, and reflective environment. But we don't want silence either. So like we were yeah. just saying, you know, we're also a prey species and we're kind of, so when it's a completely silent, there's a big storm coming mm. or there's something, there's a piece of danger when it's completely silent. So we always need a little bit of noise, you know, but we need some good noise. We need some birds yeah. or we need some water or whatever as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> there's one There's one other thing as well. I think um, I'd like to bring up just in response to this question of what, um, what are the challenges we're facing? Yeah. And I think it's very on the top of my mind at the moment because in the UK last week we just experienced a, an incredible heat wave. Yeah. Um, the the you know all time temperature record was broken two days in a row. It got up to forty degrees um, above forty degrees Celsius. Um, you know, so I think it's it's very clear to us now that we're living in climate change. It's no longer something that we're you know might come in the future. It's something that we're we're in in now. It's it's there's a lot of good people working on mitigating the effects of climate change, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's we know that much. Um, and so I think there's a really big need very quickly to bring in the language of climate adaptation into um, into the urban professions. Climate adaptation just means that um, we recognize the fact that we're, we're living with the effects of climate change and therefore our behavior and our infrastructure needs to change to ensure uh, safety and the health and hopefully the, the happiness and the thriving of people who live in urban environments. Um, you know, British, British, cities, <laughs> British cities and buildings were never designed for temperatures, you know, above, you know, 40 degrees, even mm -hmm. above 30 degrees, it, things, you know, we really start to struggle. Um, and so there's a huge challenge now if, if that's going to start to become more expected every year is actually the, the what do we do to ensure, first of all, that, you know, to try and bring down the excess deaths that, that do happen every time there's a heat wave. Um, and then, you know, that's sort of, I think, the, the, the priority. Uh, so looking at people who are vulnerable, people with pre-existing conditions who are most at risk, I think should be the priority for, for adaptation. Uh, and then the other is just the rest of us who maybe can, can survive through a heat wave, but are just absolutely miserable through it. And there's also, you know, lost economic activity. Um, there's also increased crime rates every time there's a heat wave. That's uh, a phenomenon that's been studied in that, you know, once the temperature starts to break above that which people are, are feel comfortable in, um, they're more likely, there are more instances of things like violent crime, for instance. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, these are the things that we're starting to see happen. Um, and I think as it happens, we're on the... Uh, the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast, 
bringing more nature in cities is, is one of the best ways actually of adapting to a changing climate. Um, and so for instance, uh, all of us in the heat wave were, were became sea, shade seeking people. We, we didn't want to be out sunbathing anymore. We wanted to be hiding under a tree um, or in an air conditioned place. Uh, and so, you know, increasing that level of canopy cover in cities and some, I read a study a while ago that said that something like 40% canopy cover. So if you look up, the sky should be almost half filled with the branches and leaves of trees um, is, is kind of optimal for bringing cooling in our sort of climate. Um, so obviously, you know, you just look out the window, we have a long way to go. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of trees in London. London has some fantastic trees, but we have a long way to go to make sure everyone has that equitable cover of shade. Uh, trees and more natural materials like soil and planting. It's also fantastic for minimizing flooding as well, because instead of all that water just sitting on the streets and entering into the basements and ground floors of your house, they, uh, it just soaks down into the soil, um, which is exactly what it would do in a, in a natural uh, environment. Yeah. Um, so a huge, huge case. We're only getting more and more reasons to bring more nature into cities, I, <laughs> I would say. Exactly. exactly. I, I've read as well that it reduces the temperature by like something like 50 percent. It does. It really makes a big difference. Um, also, I interviewed uh, Dr. Joanna Leach. Um, she's a research fellow at Birmingham University, and she was talking about the benefits of um, of having trees, like you're saying, mm. for you know, soaking up runoff. And all this kind of thing um you know we're losing our topsoils and and you know yeah. like you're saying the flooding and, and you know the more the more things we've got that actually drink the water um naturally makes sense you know and we're going to see this we're going to see the the i mean i think there's supposed to be some flooding coming i think they've, they've been saying that so we've got the mm -hmm. heat wave we've got the drying and then because the soil is getting harder and compact yeah. more comp you know compact so when the rain comes it's just gonna just Can't soak in. Yeah, yeah it's gonna find the the lowest point isn't it which as you say could be your your basement could be your house you know um and then all the all that all that, that that sort of comes with that economic and also life lives lost um, exactly so water um i'm really interested in like bringing water and waterscapes into the built environment whether that's through canals or introducing fountains or yeah. you know we're, we're all drawn to this this whole blue mind thing um i think you know blue is the favorite color for most people um oh, right. you know, um, but in cities, it's just so important because um, it makes you feel alive as well. You know, there's again more studies that've been done that prove that we we just we just thrive. It just makes us happy and, yeah. and reduces the temperature again in in a city yeah. with, the, with the water, the cooling of the water. Paris is really leading on this because they back in I think 2004 uh, in France in particular there was a really really deadly heat wave and yeah. that sort of snapped them into action and they you know the municipalities just said we need to have heat wave action plans and we need to start rolling out things to make sure this doesn't happen again mm. um which we, sh we should really learn from in the uk because i think you know when the heat wave hit last week there was really nothing you know, the government wasn't really rolling out anything to help people they were just saying stay indoors drink plenty of water you know yeah. deal with it yourselves basically um but anyway pa something paris that uh, something that paris is doing is they're bringing a lot more water and access to water for people um, and so they're sort of helped by this because a sort of historic urban design uh, thing in in French cities is having fountains so there's lots of beautiful yeah. little squares that have a fountain and yeah. so what they've done is you know they've they, they keep those running so people can at least go and touch the water but they've also started adding things like misters um, okay. so you can literally you'll walk along and then at a certain point in the street they'll just be somewhere where that is just shooting mist out so you can just stand there for a second and get the cooling yeah. you know from the mist 
um they've they do started... that in vegas i was gonna say they do that in vegas <laughs> as well i remember being like well, what's going on here but then they do everything in vegas so yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah and they've opened up i mean i remember seeing photos of um these sort of shallow ponds uh, shadow shallow pools uh by the eiffel tower mm. uh in the park along the eiffel tower and people were just in there bathing you yeah. know during heat waves so giving people like free and and equitable access actually to water and bathing spots is really really effective as well yeah that's good have you have you ever been to the king's cross granary square um just as the regeneration they've done there and they've got these little fountains that are there and, and it's great if you sit there for the coffee and you're just like people watch and and is it really really interesting especially different times of the day you get like some kiddies that come along that kind of playing around there but then you see business people like they roll they kick the shoes off they roll this and they're like they're, they're, they're sort of walking around in the fountains it was just yeah. like this brings back this kind of childlike nature within us you know that this desperate connection to be near water it's uh um yeah it's quite Fantastic. it's quite an amazing thing yeah <laughs> um you spoke about like obviously more trees and, and we've just said about water being in, in the thing is there anything else that we're going to we could do do you think that we can reverse the trend um you know away from the non-greening um mm. I, I know that there's been a um a thing recently the government have put out they said that we need to have more um green in mm. the city but what, what do you think i mean is is there you know do, who do we need to get involved i mean obviously we need the government we need um, town planners, we need mayors, we need all those people. But, you know, have you had a thought about, you know, a kind of way of we could yeah. do that? No, it's a really good question. And I think really quickly, when you start thinking about these things, yeah. you go, you have to go from theory to practice really quickly. So we don't really yeah. have time to sort of just <laughs> sit around talking about these things for too long. Yeah. We have to figure out how to make them happen. Something that really struck me when I um, started working with London National Park City and meeting the other rangers who are more involved than, than I am in local community uh, greening projects is that there's so many people all throughout the city who are really um, uh, ambitious, who have a lot of energy, who want to give their time to making their street or their neighborhood more green and more biodiverse, uh, more biophilic. But there's so many barriers put up in place of them doing that. And a lot of them are bureaucratic. And so um, you know, I, I, I started my career working in a local authority down in Brighton, and I work a lot now with local authorities across the southeast, and I really, really feel their pain of being so short staffed and, and underfunded and really not having the time or the, the ability or even the thinking space to do the things that are not, you know, the, the minimum that they're required to do by law. Um, but I think we're missing a huge opportunity in the fact that when a, let's say a local person says i want to get uh some street trees put on my street we have no trees it's really yeah. gray i want to do it i'm going to get a, some volunteers from the street to plant it we're going to get someone to donate the trees and they said but we need permission from the council to do it and so they first of all they don't know who to talk to so yeah. there's no like direct line so then they sort of spend ages scrolling through the council website which is always a labyrinth and <laughs> then they eventually find someone in maybe like the parks department and then they try to contact them. They don't get any response, you know, and then eventually they get contact and the person says, well, you know, I don't think this is really a good idea. It's not really in our plan. You know, I'm not sure if this is going to work. And, and, you know, I've had that experience as well, contacting my local council with an idea that I was really excited about that I thought they'd really get on board with. And they said, oh, well, there's going to be loads of problems with that. We can see yeah. this is going to go wrong and we don't know how to handle this. So 
I think what I would love to see and something I want to work on with the, with the rest of the Rangers is sort of a list of tasks or a list of um, requests or a list of sort of a process yeah. that local authorities can use to sort of unlock the power of their local communities to mm. do this really important local greening and climate adaptation um that i know they want to do but they're just not given the time and, and the resources to do it so yeah let's see I, I hopefully we'll we'll get a look into that over the next few months and can report back with some with some findings but it seems like there needs to be a much more streamlined process mm -hmm. that if you see local local people who want to do something that you know we know we have to do anyway which is urban greening <laughs> we should all be getting behind there should, yeah. it, we should be making it really easy for them to do that. Yeah, well, I hope you do write, um, you know, report back on it. Um, so I'm launching the magazine in uh, October this year. So maybe you could uh, have like a column so you can keep us keep us updated on, on how that goes, because I, I think that's really important. Um, because, you know, the, it's, it's always having a roadmap for people, isn't it, yeah. as well, for both parties, you know, the community, people that want, you know, that, as you say, there's lots of people wanting to do good stuff, and then you don't know where to go, and if you do, it kind of falls at the first hurdle, because, mm. you know, someone's overworked, which is natural, they're understaffed, and all this kind of thing, but there is a way, there must be a way, because, you know, there has to be a way, really, yeah, exactly. you know? so, yeah. So yeah, so fantastic. So yeah, I'll be I'll be on at you to um to write me write me articles like give me updates. <laughs> um, you know, word from the park as well. I think I'd quite like that. You know, you and the squirrels that'd be good. <laughs> fantastic. Um, oh, brilliant. Well, um, from my point of view, I, I always ask um uh this question to everybody at the end of my podcast. You know, it's kind of like a, a sort of magic a magic question. If you could paint. <laughs> You could paint the world with a, a magic brush of biophilia what would it look like great question i love that i love that because it gets the imag your imagination running um one of the the most profound biophilic experiences that i have um is every year i go camping with some friends mm. in uh south downs uh in, in the south of england and uh, we, we go to this very like basic campsite which is basically just a field and it's surrounded by ancient woodland and so every morning at sort of 5 a.m., we get woken up by the dawn chorus. Okay, yeah. Which is this amazing phenomenon in, in, in these sort of, this sort of part of the world where um, once the sun starts to, to rise in the morning, all the birds wake up and they immediately start singing, all of them together. And it's like when you go to a, a properly intact, like dense woodland, it's like a symphony. Yeah. it's it's really you can't describe it you have to sort of i'm sure you can people can find recordings of it online but the best thing to do is actually go and try and experience it yourself um it's really really amazing and and beautiful and it gives you a sense that there is still wildness around um you don't get that in the city so i live in zone two in london which is quite you know quite inner city um mostly what i get is a few belligerent seagulls <laughs> you know, so, quite have the same effect what i would love what i would love to see as my sort of biophilic vision um is thinking about that auditory experience of imagine if you were woken up um in the morning in the summer by a dawn chorus in the city um i think that would be a really profound thing because not only is it a really joyous thing but it might also help to kind of connect us back to our circadian rhythms so this sort of natural um wake and sleep cycle um, that many of us have lost because we, we can 
basically shine artificial blue lights and we can sit, sit in front of a screen all day and it messes up our circadian rhythms. Um, now, it might be quite annoying for people who want to sleep in, who are constantly getting woken up <laughs> at 6 a.m. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, I, I just think that would be a really, really beautiful vision. And I think as well, it's, maybe there's a bit of a magic about thinking about the end point, because, we, you know, I've been talking throughout this about, you know, oh, we need to plant more trees, we need more greening. But then what's the end point? Like, well, how do we know we've been successful? And maybe a marker of success is that we've recreated a sort of a woodland habitat in the city to the point where the birds are happy enough there to have a dawn chorus. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's that's what I've, I've, I would think of. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.